As I look at it, it feels like, uh, yeah, looking at friends. It's sweet. We, we spend days together in pretty intense contemplation. Yeah. And is the sound okay? Not too loud, not too soft, just right. Great, great. Okay, great. So, I'd like to start tonight's offering with a a line, a quote from Anne Klein, the Buddhist scholar. She says, life is a party on death row. (laughs) Isn't that great? I love both aspects of that. The party. It's really a party to appreciate the party aspect of it. Woohoo! It's exciting. It's a party. It really is. And it happens to be on death row. It just is. Yeah. Also, what, what that quote captures for me something that we've been talking about together about um, bringing lightness and levity to it all. It doesn't have to be so grim, right, the contemplation. Um, it just is. Just, it's the truth of impermanence. It can be, you know, emotions can come up, sadness, and, and it's funny in a way. It really is. The whole thing, the whole show is kind of funny. All of it. It's humorous. Ajahn Shah says, when I know that the glass is already broken, every minute with it is precious. So that's the aspect of Omar Nasati contemplating death, awakening to life. It's really that aspect that we've been weaving through our practices and through our talks and interactions. It's not just grim, contemplate your death. It's really alignment, awakening, some vega, that, that spiritual urgency, this, that energy for life that comes in. When you know that the glass is already broken, every minute with it is precious. You know it's already broken. And yesterday we, we spent time contemplating this body after it dies as a corpse disintegrating, letting go of of that, letting go of the attachment to this body, which is really precious and important practice. And and also another aspect of that, that practice is, is really accepting the, that this body is nature. This body falls apart. Even when we're alive, it starts to fall apart. Have you noticed as you age? Oh yeah, I hear some oh yes, yeah. It's it's nature. So really contemplating it as nature that's left out and decays and decomposes also gives us an appreciation and making peace and embracing that it's nature. Cells die, they don't regenerate as quickly after a while. Old age, sickness, and death. 
all of these, just parts of parts of life. And that also helps with this with this enchantment with the body. And I use the word disenchantment, the word enchanted, you know, in fairy tales, often there is a spell put on a character. They're enchanted, right? There's a spell. It's usually not a good thing to be enchanted, right? So, so this idea of disenchantment with this body, enchantment is not so much of a good thing. Um, I mean, taking care of it, of course, is a, it's, a, it's a good thing, you're responsible for your body, but enchantment with, with it and, and taking it too personally, when it just does its own thing, it's, it's not self, it's not... Can you tell your body not to age? Can you tell your body to digest faster or slower or, or fall asleep now. It's just there's so many things we don't have control over. So really these contemplations help with, with that aspect of um, anatta, not-self, recognizing the body is, is a body, is nature. Today we've been talking about practicing as well as last night in Eugene's beautiful talk about letting go, letting go, letting go. I'd like to to share with you a a piece of an interview with um, the Tibetan Buddhist teacher uh, Mingyur Renpeshe, who um, in March of 2012... I think that's when he disappeared. He had secret plans to disappear to go on a four-year-long wandering retreat where he just wandered around um, without anything. He he was a very well-known, celebrated, um, and sought-after teacher, very popular, very busy, and he just left it all. And he just left, I think, in the middle of the night with just his robe. Um, He just left. To, to wander around and do this wandering ascetic practice for four years, which, which is um, not uncommon, um, especially in his tradition, in the Tibetan tradition. And then when <clears throat> he re-emerged, um, Lion's Roar magazine, a Buddhist magazine, had um, an interview, one of his senior students interview with him soon after he resurfaced from his four-year wandering. So the student asks, what was it like to go from being an important Buddhist teacher living in comfort in a monastery to an anonymous sadhu, the ascetic Hindu yogis who beg and live on the streets of India? I had a strong determination to be on the streets, but I was naive to think I could live on the streets right away. It took me a while. Giving up my identity as a monk was one thing. And of course, I also had to let go of my desire for comfort, food, and the basic necessities of life, even the desire to be safe. It was a good way to practice my meditation on letting go. The next question. 
What was the best experience you had? Remember. Remember this as I read the paragraph. What is the best experience you had? He asks. It was actually a near-death experience. I had in Kushing, Kushinagar, the holy place where the Buddha died, not long after I started my retreat, I got very sick with vomiting and diarrhea. And one morning, my health was so bad that I was sure I was going to die. When I got sick, it felt like I went through some kind of wall of solid attachment to my body, my comfort, my robes, and even the idea of Mingyur Rinpoche. I slowly let go, let go, let go, let go. In the end, I even let go of myself. I thought, if I'm going to die, okay. If I'm going to die, no problem. At that moment, I didn't have any fear. I had some kind of dissolution, as they call it in the texts, and lost touch with my physical body altogether. Then I had a wonderful experience. There was no thought, no emotion, no concept, no subject or object. Mind was clear and wakeful, like a blue sky with the sun shining, transparent and all-pervasive. It's very, very difficult to describe. I cannot really, it, can, it cannot really be put into words. Then at a certain point, I had the thought, okay, this is not the time for me to die. This was somehow related to compassion mind. Then I could feel my body again, and I opened my eyes. I stood up to get some water, and suddenly became unconscious and collapsed. I woke up in a local clinic with a glucose drip in my arm. The next day, I recovered and left the clinic. What happened then? After this experience, my mind felt so fresh and my meditation really improved. I could appreciate everything. All resistance was gone and I felt like I was one with the environment. I could go on the streets and rejoice in everything. That's letting go completely completely letting go, completely letting go, which is what also Ajahn Chah, our teacher in the forest tradition, says, do everything with a mind that lets go. Don't accept praise or gain or anything else. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you, go, if you let go completely, you will have complete peace. And that is what the possibility is. Not just in life, but in the moment of death. So, Maranasati, the practice of contemplating death, prepares us for the moment of death. It does prepare us for the moment of death so that we can die 
feeling, as he said, okay, I'm going to die. No problem. No fear. No fear whatsoever. This practice does prepare us for that moment. And that moment, it is said, the moment of death, can be a moment of liberation. Complete letting go can open up to Nibbana, to the deathless. I'll talk a little more about that in a moment. Also, another function of death contemplation, not just preparing for our moment of death, which is already pretty cool, if you ask me, but it also, this preparation, it feeds into us living more fully because preparing for our death, as we've explored together and discovered, it brings in an appreciation for the preciousness of life. So actually, death contemplation prepares us for life. Really, we live more fully when we are aware of our death, when we have our death on our shoulder like a wise advisor all the time. It informs our life and it informs our death, which is why the Buddha called death contemplation, Maranasati, the supreme of all mindfulness practices. So, this practice can open us up to Nibbana, the deathless. And as Venerable Anayo, in his talk, brought in the word, the deathless, I wanted to touch into that. What is that, the deathless? The deathless. So, the word Nibbana, liberation, freedom, has, been, has many translations, many ways it's, it's seen as Eugene talked about, extinguishing is a translation of literally the word Nibbana, to to extinguish, to go out. Other words the Buddha uses in in the suttas for describing Nibbana is also the deathless or the unconditioned, two other words that he uses synonymously. So, the deathless, unconditioned. It is said that the one who becomes liberated, whose, whose heart and mind has freedom. What is liberation? It's freedom, it's ease. What is that? From Sanyuta Nikaya 45.7, the destruction of greed, hatred, and delusion, this is called the deathless. It's very simple. The destruction of greed, hatred, and delusion, this is called the deathless. From Samyutta Nikaya 42.1, the destruction of greed, hatred, and delusion, this is called the unconditioned. So Gil Fransdell, Buddhist teacher and scholar, writes, Here we see that concepts such as the unconditioned and the deathless, 
that that lend themselves to mystical interpretations are clearly defined in psychological terms. There is nothing mysterious about the Dharma. In studying the teachings of the Buddha, we should keep in mind the core principles of his teaching of the Dharma. To be the Dharma, teachings must be something we can know for ourselves. The Dharma is realized through practices connected to the destruction of greed, hatred, and delusion. Or, in other words, to let go of all clinging. You remember that, letting go? to let go of all clinging, leading to peace and to Nibbana. So it is said that the the one whose mind is liberated, whose heart is liberated, becomes fearless, becomes completely fearless. Fear cannot touch them. They're not afraid. Therefore, the Lord of death cannot touch them because they're not afraid. From Majjhima Nikaya 130.30, not clinging, they are freed through the destruction of birth and death. Happy, attaining safety, they are released. Nibbutta, here and now, they are released here and now. They have gone beyond all fear and hate. They have gone beyond all suffering. So we do this practice for freedom, for going beyond fear, going beyond all hatred, going beyond all suffering. Nibbana, unconditioned, deathless. You see how it all ties in. So this this practice of death contemplation is a liberating practice. It's not separate from the goal of all practice, of all practice that we do, mindfulness of death. Mindfulness, the path to the deathless. I also wanted to touch in, as I am, bringing in some things that Venerable Analio referred to, and as I mentioned, I wanted to bring in. He talked briefly and touched on the theory of rebirth and past lives, which is, it, which is a part of Buddhist teachings. And and as Eugene and I have been encouraging you, inviting you to hold the don't know mind, because really, we don't know. We really don't know. These are theories, hypotheses, writings, but we don't know for ourselves, right? No one has come back to tell us, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's what's going to happen. That's what's happening, right? Um, so, so what I'm about to share with you in, the, in this section of the talk I would like to offer for your consideration. It's not indoctrination, and it's not the truth. I don't know. I'm just offering what I've read. Who knows? So hold it lightly, as lightly as you possibly can. Okay? Deal? 
Okay, good. All right, I can continue now. We've got a deal. Great. So, there is um, one researcher, actually, who's done quite a bit of research. And, and, and as a scientist, as a researcher myself, this, this appeals to me, so I share that from that perspective from, uh, um, for, to you, for, for you. Um, his name is Ian Stevenson. And he was a, a Canadian-American psychiatrist who's now passed away. And he was quite well respected, actually, as a scientist and with his methodolo- methodological work. And he worked at the University of Virginia Medical School, uh, sorry, um, University of Virginia School of Medicine, for 50 years. And um, he became curious and interested in researching rebirth. And the idea that emotions, memories, or even physical injuries in the form of birthmarks can be transferred from one life to another. He traveled extensively over a period of 40 years investigating 3,000 cases. 3,000 cases. This is not just anecdotal one or two. 3,000 cases of children around the world who claim to remember past lives. And it's quite interesting. I've, I've, there, there are many books with all these cases, and there are some books that have the select cases, and they're, they're photographs. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing, actually, having been curious and having read them all. I mean, not all, having read through them. Um, there are cases where um, the children who are reporting remember, remembering how they died um, and they have a birthmark exactly in that part of the body and being corroborated and going back and uh, where they remember they died um, with with various um, witnesses, etc. And there are also stories which is quite interesting. And, and, and to the best he could, he would have a controlled uh, situation. One story that comes to mind is a um, young boy who was who reported remembering living in a neighboring village that he had never been to and his um, family hadn't been to. So um, Ian Stevenson comes, visits, and they all go together to that village for the first time. And the, and the little kid goes to the house and he points out and says, "Oh, you you were my uncle. You were my grand. You know, you're my daughter. You were my this. You're my that. This is where I have this stored. This is where I have money stashed." And it's it's pretty amazing to read the account. Um, so for whatever is worth, if you're curious, I offer that to you. And who knows? Who knows? I'd like to share a quote, actually, from um, from the astronomer, astronomer Carl Sagan, who in 1996... So Carl Sagan was a renowned skeptic of anything paranormal, quote-unquote. In 1996, 1996, Carl Sagan, the astronomer, astronomer Carl Sagan, a founding member of a group that set out to debunk unscientific claims, wrote in his book, The Demon Haunted World, The Demon Haunted World, he wrote, 
there are three claims in the parapsychology field which, in my opinion, deserve serious study. The third of which was that young children sometimes report details of a previous life which upon checking turn out to be accurate and which they could not have known about in any other way than reincarnation. Well, we call it rebirth here. But I want to take a pause and just sit with the astronomer Carl Sagan, who had really devoted a lot of energy to debunking unscientific claims for him to say, okay, there are three things that are worth checking out because we can't quite explain, and this is one of them. So that's, that's kind of interesting to me from, from a pretty well-established skeptic. But again, who knows? And I just also want to, to comment on when I said um, in Buddhism we call it rebirth, not reincarnation. There's a distinction here I want to po- point out. So in um, a reincarnation, the word um, implies that it's the same atta, the same soul or self, is reincarnated. It's, it's a self that is carried through. Whereas the idea of rebirth, which is, um, which is um, what Buddhism uh, supports, purports, is that karmic potentiality is what gets transferred from one life to another. It's not the same soul or self or being. If you think of a billiard ball, right? You have a billiard ball in motion. It's in motion. It has kinetic energy. It comes and hits another billiard ball, and the next billiard ball starts moving. Is it the same billiard ball moving? No. Is it the same kinetic energy that was transferred? Yes. So the idea is this karmic potentiality that, that propels this next life, this rebirth, this birth of the next life. So continuing with the who knows section of the talk, I also want to bring in, um, as, as came up in the question days ago with near-death experiences and reports, as well as what an Venerable Analyo brought in with respect to near-death experiences. And I think I mentioned that also a few mornings ago, that um, there are many reports, um, again, collected of people who have had a physical death um, they have flatlined, um, they have, their hearts have stopped, maybe they were brought back to life artificially in some way, uh, or maybe they drowned and they stopped breathing, and, and um, so, so they experience physical death. And there are actually many scientists, one whose name I forgot to write here, but maybe I'll mention it tomorrow, um, who's also been a, I believe he's a surgeon, and um, I think he's worked in, um, in CPR, which is why he's become interested in this, and, and he's collected many of these cases, um, as well as many others who've collected them. And um, I just wanted to share again with the spirit of who knows, um, 
some of the similarities that um, one sees in these reports from different cultures, different backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, um, different ages, um, all through the globe. So, what often seems to happen is there is this experience of um, the person who who reports having had an NDE, near-death experience, um, that they feel that they are hovering over their body. They can see, they can see other things, and they can hear things that are not happening in the room. And again, there are many cases that this has been corroborated, interestingly enough. So there's a sense of seeing, and then the sense of feeling what other people are feeling in the room. Some some reports report that also. And then, um, sense of feeling that, oh, there's my body. Wait, that means I'm dead. Oh. And then, after that, there's um, almost always a reporting um, going through a tunnel, going through a dark tunnel traveling at light speed very fast in a dark tunnel towards a light. And what is reported after that is that when the travel continues and, and one arrives at the light, and the light, different people, the, according to their religious beliefs, describe it in a different way. Um, some people describe seeing just a being of light, a complete being of light that is um, epitome of love and compassion and just completely loving and accepting and just engulfs the person with, with their compassion. And in the presence of the being of light, the person feels completely loved and safe, not because they've done anything to deserve it, just because they are human just because they exist, just completely engulfed in it, and every trace of fear um, drops. Some people report seeing Jesus, Mother Mary, um, and many other reports. Um, there's a, even a report of a young kid uh, seeing, apparently, there is a very wise teenage mutant nin- ninja turtle. <laughs> I don't know if it's Raphael or Splinter. I'm not really up on my teenage mutant ninja turtles, but it might be Raphael. Is it? Maybe. Yeah, I'm getting a thumbs up. Somebody who no, great. So I think it's Raphael. I seem to remember. Great. Uh, they saw Raphael as a person. So depending on what your belief system is, the personification of this feeling of complete could be different. Um, and there's also a report of, of loved ones who have passed, who come in um, to greet, to greet and welcome the person who's arriving. There's also a report that there is no judge, there is no, not a person who judges you there for your actions, but that there is a very rapid life review that pe- often people say they can't, describe how it could have possibly, they could have possibly reviewed all moments of their life in the few minutes or seconds that they flatline. It doesn't make sense to them, but apparently there is a very quick life review in which one feels, reportedly, 
all the emotions in that moment, both from one's own perspective and everybody else's they affected. So if there was a moment of, say, you hurt someone, ouch, you feel you, f- you hurt. So you feel all the hurt that you've caused. There's no one judging you bad, good, but you feel like, ouch, ouch, I shouldn't have done that. I should never do that again. So many people who come back from these experiences often have a complete different perspective, a different way of living and relating in relationships uh, because they see that the harm that they're causing others, they're causing to themselves and they see all the cause that is harmed with eyes that have no dust. When, you, when your eyes have no dust, you see everything. You see all the causes and conditions of, of both good and harm you're causing. It just becomes, till it makes you much more sensitive instead of feeling that, oh, this is me, this is the limit of my body, this is me, me, mine, that's you. But it just, it, it, you see the interconnection with everything and everyone, and that's what's reported. And then in those who come back, there's always some kind of a threshold where they have to make a choice, whether they want to continue or, or to come back. In many cases, they don't have a choice. They are told, you're not finished, you need, to come. you need to go back to Earth. And sometimes they report, they actually say, no, I want to stay, this is great. Your time hasn't come yet, this is said. I want to read one sentence from Anita Morjani, who had a pretty actually um, pretty interesting near-death experience which she writes about eloquently in her book Dying to Be Me, My Journey from Cancer to Near Death to True Healing. And in her case, um, she had a cancer that had metastasized and and, um, she dies basically in the hospital and she has this near-death experience from which when she comes back, um, all the tumors, everything heals, which is which the doctors have reviewing her case, many doctors reviewing her case can't really explain. Um, they say, with every which way we look at it later, you must be dead now, but you're not. You somehow, anyway, so this is what she says. In my NDE state, I realized that the entire universe is composed of unconditional love. And I'm an expression of this. Every atom, molecule, quark, and tetraquark is made of love. I can be nothing else because this is my essence and the nature of the entire universe. Even things that seem negative are all part of the infinite, unconditional spectrum of love. So, We read, we're interested in what is out there and to hold all of this with a don't know. We really don't know what's going to happen. We don't know. It's interesting to read some of these accounts because the mystics also, when, when you have meditative experiences, many of them can feel, can feel in this way that can feel the interconnection and that the world, that, that the fabric of the universe is emptiness and love. So, anyway, who knows? Who knows? 
But it really, the one reason why I offer this is you can let it go and it really points to living here, this life right here with not knowing, but knowing that it ends and knowing and allowing that to inform how we live our life every single moment how it affects ourselves, how it affects our relationships, how it affects the way we are in the world. I'd like to read a Thanksgiving reflection from Stephen Stuckey, who was the abbot at the San Francisco Zen Center and died um, the New Year's Eve 2014. Uh, after a battle with pancreatic cancer. He was 67. The challenge of this practice often slaps me in the face and sets off a series of seemingly impossible barriers. These days, as you know, as you may know, I wake up and say gratitude. And the next, the next thought is pain in the belly or cancer or it's not fair. To accept such thoughts with gratitude may be impossible and even contribute to f- further unwholesome states of mind. So it is realistically healthier to enter this practice by creating a field of positive energy, by first naming what you know from experience is nourishing for you. For example, gratitude for my friend Larry, or gratitude for my mentor, my lover, my mother, the person who changed my life of gratitude for sobriety, my family, this food, the sunlight, mashed potatoes and gravy, the capacity for healing, etc. It quickly becomes clear that one can create an infinite list of positive nourishments, and the mere fact of being alive tells one that positive, tells one that positive, that is, life-supporting factors outweigh all others, this is, a base, this is a basis for fundamental confidence in reality. Know that this life is rare and wonderful because it is happening right now with the full support of the universe. Wow. Once the above truth is clear, it is not so difficult to be kind. One naturally wants to give back to that from which one has received so much. And since one has received and is now receiving so much from the mere existence of each other, it's a perfect time to say thank you, I love you. I invite you to take up this practice today as a positive nourishment practice for yourself. As you do so, I feel even more gratitude and delight. Love, Miog and Steve. Jack Hornfield says, in the end, just three things matter. How well we have lived, how well we have loved, and how well we have learned to let go. This really points and brings attention to meaning, essence, ethics, relationships, whatever 
is meaningful for you in your life, whatever it might be, loving, loving the world, loving yourself, loving those who are in your life. Brings awareness to our relationships, relationship with ourselves and with others. Are these relationships as rich as they can be, given that we have limited time? With the finality of death, Maybe we can take the relationships, if we are taking them lightly, maybe take them not so much for granted. If that is the case for you, may not be, but if it is. And what are we hanging on to in our relationships? What are we hanging on to? What are you hanging on to? Is there need for letting go, for, for forgiveness, for forgiving yourself and moving on, letting go of past hurts, letting go of what you're carrying, I should have, I could have, and letting go of past hurts from others. What are you holding on to? Is there a need for forgiveness? for asking for forgiveness. It often naturally arises, actually, when one prefer, prepares for death, having been with, with loved ones whose time had come. That's what naturally arises. There's a need for, for asking for forgiveness and for offering forgiveness. I remember that in my own experience. It's, it's what arose naturally. And I was in my 20s, I didn't even know. And later, reading books about death and dying. Oh, that's what's recommended. Asking for forgiveness, offering forgiveness before you go. But that's actually what arises naturally because it can't be any other way. So as we are contemplating our death, also allowing the contemplation of, is there any unfinished business? What is the unfinished business of the heart? Not the to-do list that we will die with, but the unfinished business of the heart in forgiving ourselves, forgiving others, asking for forgiveness, reparation. What are we hanging on to? And this, inc this inquiry, this encouragement isn't to, to say, oh, you have to, you have to forgive, you have to forgive yourself now or you have to forgive others. It's not that. It's just to bring it into your consciousness because in many cases, you may feel you're not ready to forgive yet. And that's okay too. The practice of forgiveness is to, to offer forgiveness to others and to yourself as much as it is available, even if it's a teeny weeny bit, like a morsel as much as it's available, not trying to push it, not trying to jump into it, not trying to, to, do, to be unreal, just being real with what is, what is right. And opening up to it gently, slowly, opening up to it with as much patience and tenderness and gentleness as you can muster. I'd like to end the talk with 
a quote from Kali Rinpoche. As far as I know, he didn't, this is not from a near-death experience, it's just his experience from, from this world, from this life. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When you understand this, you see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Let's just sit together for a moment. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When you understand this, you see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. you for your kind attention and I hope that the offering was of some use and some value and if there's anything that wasn't please let it go thank you Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.